The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Lucas Alpert. I'm the financial crime reporter at Market Watch. And today on Barron's Live, we will be looking at the darker side of money. Um, this is a regular feature that we do where we examine the CB underbelly of finance. We look at the world of scams, money laundering, and financial crime. Um, today, we're going to be exploring specifically the latest trends in money laundering. Um, that's that pernicious financial tool used by criminals around the world to bring their dirty money out of the shadows and make it appear to be clean again. Uh, we're joined today by Sven Stumbauer, a senior financial crimes expert with Grant Thornton's LLP's anti-money laundering and sanctions practice. Uh, Sven's been at this for more than 20 years. He keeps track of the changing landscape of financial crime, anti-money laundering, corruption, and bribery practices. Uh, he's advised financial institutions in more than 60 countries around the world. He's also the author of The Next Wave of Global Anti-Money Laundering Enforcement, From Strict Compliance to Intelligent Risk Management That Creates Value. Sven, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um I thought we could start with just something very simple. Um, you know, people kind of have heard of money laundering, but maybe we could talk a little bit about how money money laundering actually works. See, you, you just hit on it in your introduction. Essentially, money laundering is con the conversion of illicit monies that you receive from a criminal activity, be this drug trafficking, embezzlement, corruption, etc., and making them appear legitimate so you can actually use those monies in your day-to-day -day life, so to speak. Mm -hmm. If you think about a traditional problem, let's use a drug dealer as an example, you sell your product and you end up with a pile of cash. But that pile of cash is not that easily used in your day-to-day -day life. Yes, you can pay for dinner, but it will be fairly difficult to buy yourself a very nice sports car, a very nice condo, etc. So the natural next step is you need to somehow launder your ill-gotten gains. And there's academic definitions and stages of the laundering process. Just to maybe recap, the first one would be placement, where you take your cash and place it in the legitimate financial system. The next stage would be a layering where you create a set of transactions that appear to be tied to a legitimate business to, again, hide the origin of your funds. And the last stage would be integration, where you essentially successfully laundered your funds and you're free to use the monies as you wish. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, you think about, you know, large scale drug traffickers and the amount of money that they're actually making, right. you know, and how do you move, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars from the shadows <laughs> into, into the light. Um, I always think about, you know, the old story, I, you know, I, I, grew, I grew up in New York and it was, you know, the, the, the pizza parlor here would be like, oh yeah, right. you know, the mafia would be moving, you know, they would own it and, uh, you know, move money through there. Cause you know, who's to say if they sold 
100 pies or 500 pies a day. It's all cash. You could just say you sold right. 500. But, you know, you're talking about pretty minuscule amounts of money at that scale. So, you know, if you have to do this at a larger scale, I guess it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. It's quite, it can be quite complex, the, the structures that are built to funnel this through, yes? They can be complex, but you're not far off with a pizza parlor. <laughs> you would have to create many more pizza parlors or other businesses that use cash as a means of exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, the schemes do get complex, but they all start out with a very simplistic principle of you taking your cash and bringing it through some form or fashion into the financial system. Mm-hmm. Pizza parlor, the art market mm-hmm. is also very cash intensive. Any type of business that accepts cash mm-hmm. is your first entry point. The other method would also be you put the cash in the trunk of your car and drive across the border. Right. The technical term is bulk cash smuggling that's also happening or fly it out by plane. Mm-hmm. So money launderers use all the techniques. And if we're going back to your example of the pizza parlor to bulk cash smuggling to very sophisticated networks of businesses they create for purposes of legitimizing or make the ill-gotten gains appear legitimate. Um, you know, this practice has you know, been around in some form, I, I suppose, since we've had a banking system. Um, are there any like kind of novel new developments that have occurred in the current financial world? I mean, obviously, it's much more global and integrated. Does that create some new new sort of interesting approaches to this? Let me tag on. I think it's been around longer than the banking mm-hmm. system. I think it's been around <laughs> since we had crime and money right, right. and people committed crimes and did not want to pay taxes mm-hmm. and or didn't want to pay taxes on their businesses. So it's probably one of the world's oldest businesses, like mm-hmm. some other ones. Um, to your second part of the question, are things getting more complex? I would say they are probably things are moving faster. Mm-hmm. It's more of a much global problem and professional money launderers exploit weaknesses in, ch- in certain jurisdictions. If you fast forward to, let's say, from Al Capone in the 20s and the first famous money laundering cases in the U.S. that started back then, we've moved from cash to more faster means of transfer of value and borders in international finance become less and less relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe, you know, we could talk through some of the mechanics of it. I mean, obviously, you know, we talk about like a pizza parlor, some sort of simple business. What's like the simplest way that people do this? And maybe what's the most complex way, you know? Uh, look, the simplest way is still cash smurfing. Mm-hmm. You as the criminal would recruit a lot of your friends or acquaintances and break your cash up in small packages pay them a little bit of money for their time Mm -hmm. and they would start depositing this cash in a bank and you would then move the cash out of the bank to another bank overseas or first to another bank in the US. That's one of the simplest entry points into the financial system if you try to bring cash in. Um, If you do it too often, naturally the financial institutions will file a currency transaction report or a suspicious activity report on you and your friends, and sooner or later, law enforcement will catch up. Another fairly easy method is to create a business 
whether it's a pizza parlor, an art gallery, and mix your ill-gotten cash with legitimate business proceeds. Mm -hmm. To your point, nobody will be really able to see how many pies you sold mm -hmm. until you start selling millions of pies and that will get the attention of probably the tax authorities that For will sure. be very happy right because they see a huge volume of business but sooner or later it will become suspicious of a small pizza parlor sells pies worth of x million per week let's say in terms of more complex schemes uh the only limits are your imagination right mm. you and i can with relative ease set up corporate structures in different jurisdictions from the comfort of our home Mm -hmm. And obviously, we will try to hide what's commonly known the ultimate beneficial owner and create transaction between those corporate entities and make some of them appear more legitimate like businesses and others just have as pass-through entities. That's one of the challenges for law enforcement. Once you do transactions across the globe, law enforcement traditionally from mutual legal assistance agreements aside are limited to the borders of their home country. Mm. So the more jurisdictions you bring into the mix, the harder it will be to trace your illicit funds and the easier for you to make them appear legitimate. It's interesting. I've you know written quite a bit um, about some of the sort of like Nigerian criminal uh, uh, enterprises. And, you know, the what has always sort of stuck out to me is, uh, you know, part of their what they do so well is the moving of the money from where it's stolen to, you know, through 10 different banks, like within a day, you know, cause they, right. they have these networks of people all over the world where, and they just sort of, you know, everybody gets a little cut as it goes through, but, you know, ultimately right. it's just, it goes from a bank in the U S to a bank in the Cayman islands, to a bank in, you know, Hong Kong, to a bank ultimately in Nigeria or somewhere else. And, you know, it just gets law. There's no recovery, you know, past probably the second step, I suppose. <laughs> well, past the second, third, fourth, fifth step, right? right? It, it's the ease of being able to move funds around the globe. You essentially need a phone and or computer and internet access. And that enables you to move funds across the globe through various financial players in the global market at lightning speed. You mentioned the, you know, the idea of, you know, law enforcement and, you know, ag agreements among different jurisdictions, you know, that, you know, sometimes that's in place, sometimes it's not. But, you know, from a, 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 a tracking standpoint, I mean, a, a regulatory standpoint, let's say, I mean, obviously, you know, you have FinCEN and these various agencies that kind right. of, you know, require people to make disclosures. So they try and keep some eye on it. But it seems if you're really motivated to sidestep this it seems quite easy to do um you know how far ahead are the criminal actors from you know the the regulatory framework or it, it, are they more in step is it sort of a you know a, a peri peri uh, you know a, you know like you know, they're really keeping it in line with each other i would say bad actors are ahead of regulatory frameworks in general if you think about how regulatory frameworks uh, in separate jurisdictions or globally evolved, they are generally in response to an event. And those events are generally bad actors doing something somewhere, somehow, right? Mm -hmm. 
So I would say bad actors are ahead of regulatory developments because they keep track of regulatory developments and expectations and try to modify their activity to appear not unusual and not suspicious to the financial institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to remind our listeners out there that uh, we would we do take some questions at the end. If anyone has them, please submit them and we'll get to some at the, uh, in the last several minutes of the program. Um, you know, pushing ahead. Um, you know, uh, one of the thing is, uh, you know, if you are a financial institution, obviously you, you advise financial institutions around the world and, you know, they have to be on guard for this stuff. It's their responsibility. They have regulatory requirements to do so. They can obviously face a lot of trouble if they don't do it well, right. I suppose. Um, what are the things, what are the telltale signs? I'm, I'm a, an officer at a bank. You know, what are the things that they really look for? I mean, I assume they use a lot of computer modeling now, AI maybe to some degree to catch some of these suspicious transactions. But what are the clear things? It's like, this is obviously something we need to look at. It's unfortunately never that clear. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it would be easy. <laughs> also, maybe to take a step back when I speak with my banking clients, you have your regulatory requirements, right? But ultimately, if you look at any anti-money laundering legislation around the world, they all follow a quote-unquote risk-based approach. Mm -hmm. So meeting regulatory requirements is, to me, the first step. But being very risk-aware as a financial institution and knowing where your risks are for bad actors, that enables you to do some horizon scanning Mm -hmm. and look for more bad actors trying to penetrate your financial institution. Mm -hmm. If you want to speak simply about money laundering prevention, it's know your customer and monitor the activity of the Mm -hmm. customer. It sounds very simple, but the devil is oftentimes in the detail, right? The customers are not simple. The transactions are not simple. So the challenge for financial institution as they take a new customer on is to do enough due diligence, Mm -hmm. whether you call it just basic due diligence, enhanced due diligence, or really getting to know your customer and going way beyond the regulatory requirements for you to establish a comfort level if you want to do business as a financial institution with this individual, with this entity, or whoever is quote-unquote trying to work with your financial institution. Once you've done your initial due diligence, it all depends how truthful your quote-unquote customer was. Mm-hmm. And if the activity essentially matches the information you gathered during the initial due diligence steps with the transactional activity. Sure. If that is not in line, financial institutions have spent millions or billions of dollars in computer systems to generate a red flag alert. And they have very qualified in-house investigators that look at those alerts to see if this was an outlier or if this would trigger the filing requirement of a suspicious activity report with FinCEN. With that kind of report, do banks just sort of err on the side of caution? If anything even says, eh, maybe there's something wrong here, we'll just file it anyway. Is that sort of the, or, or is it, you know, obviously your customer is your customer. You don't want to like, you know, report <laughs> somebody who maybe is legitimate. I mean, where is that line? I mean, obviously this varies, I'm sure, from institution to institution, but generally do they sort of do they you know be a little bit more proactive than 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 you think banks are very proactive because Mm -hmm. if you look at the enforcement actions brought up by the different regulatory bodies 
lack of reporting of suspicious activity is one of the top items that's always cited in enforcement actions. So naturally, there is a tendency of banks to err on the side of caution and file a suspicious activity report, which regulators do not appreciate as much, and they call it defensive filing. Mm -hmm. The other argument from the business side is nobody has ever received a fine for filing too many SARs, but (laughs) many of our peers have paid significant fines for not filing enough, right? Right. And if you think about it, if you look at a customer's activity over a period of time, because generally most financial institutions do not file SARS on a one-off transaction, and you see a pattern, it becomes somewhat a judgment and a business decision Mm -hmm. if this is suspicious or just unusual. But from a business perspective, if you weigh the risk of filing versus non-filing, Obviously, filing is the easier choice because sure. you're erring on the side of caution. That makes sense. Um, let's talk about crypto. Obviously, that's changed the financial landscape in, in, in innumerable ways. But for money laundering, does that is that a new like weapon for people who do this? Or is it actually, I know there's a transparency aspect to crypto that sometimes makes this a little trickier than it would seem. Is it a useful tool for money laundering or or is it just the same as anything else? I would say it's the same as anything else. It's definitely not sometimes crypto and crypto operators are being portrayed as operating in the wild west, etc. I mean, in the US, we still working out the regulatory framework mm-hmm. to really regulate crypto. But if you think back, uh, digital currencies are not that new. Uh, Going back to, I believe it's 2013, there was a fairly large exchange of digital currency called Liberty Reserve. Mm -hmm. That was later on shut down by the US government for being misused for money laundering that converted US dollars and euros into so-called Liberty dollars and Liberty euros and enable you to move funds from A to B. And the customer due diligence was limited to your name, to your email address and to your date of birth. So if you decided that your name for purposes of opening a quote unquote account at that exchange back in 2010, 2012 was Mickey Mouse Mm -hmm. and your email was Mickey Mouse at Mm xyz.com, you could transact, right? What I see working with a lot of crypto operators is probably a misconception that it is the Wild West. Mm -hmm. And yes, there's some regulation lagging, but I would say the majority of crypto operators operating in the US are doing a lot of horizon scanning Mm -hmm. and are going above and beyond that their definition of a money service business would require them. Uh, Keep in mind, those are sophisticated business operators. They understand the risk. And their focus is less on meeting the regulatory hurdle that at the moment is not as high as with other financial institutions, Mm -hmm. but they are doing more voluntarily to intelligently manage their risk. Because like with every business, it's not good business if you appear in the headlines because you're being 
prosecuted, investigated, or had to pay a fine, right? <laughs> for sure. No, for sure. Yeah, I guess as these, you know, the, the exchanges and, and various crypto operators want to, you know, be legitimate and be part right. of the, it's, it's in the, to their benefit to be really aggressive on this stuff and not be taken advantage of, um, you know, just because they're new or, you know, like trying to work it out. Um, you know, obviously, Things like money laundering and corruption and sanctions, all these things like, you know, are individual things, but they sort of tend to work together to some degree, I think. Right. Um, and, you know, at the moment, we're kind of operating in a somewhat complex sanctions regime with what's going on in Russia and things in, in, right. in, in Ukraine. Um does that, like a situation like that, you know, you're dealing with, you know, if you're a financial institution, you're trying to figure out how to stay in line with the sanctions regimes and, and while keeping an eye on money laundering, is there overlap, like in terms of how you approach that? Um, is there overlap in the people who are money laundering trying to like evade sanctions? Is there some crossover with these things? It, it, there's definitely crossover. So financial institutions are scanning naturally as people, entities get added to, let's use the U.S. sanction list as an example. Uh, they are scanning their customer base, they are scanning their transactions, etc. If you think back to the definition of money laundering, you're trying to conceal the origin, right? And that's both a challenge for money laundering prevention, for sanctions compliance, because let's say Lucas will appear on the U.S. sanctions list, right? I hope, I hope not, uh, but yes. We, we both hope not. <laughs> but uh, let's, let's use you as an example. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it would not be great because your assets would be frozen. Mm -hmm. uh, so you would try to obscure your assets in some form or fashion. Mm -hmm. You would use a corporate entity. You would use a trust. You would use a different jurisdiction. And then again, it falls on the financial institution and their customer due diligence saying, well, my customer is ABC company established in, owned by EFG company established in, who ultimately owns those companies. Right. And, and there's different structures in different jurisdictions that lend themselves more to hiding the ultimate beneficial owner. And there's been a global trend over since the famous Panama paper broke mm -hmm. years ago that the world has been very sensitive to the concept of beneficial ownership, who owns corporate structures, who owns trusts, who's the controlling person behind those structures? And do we truly know who we're doing business with? It's interesting you bring that up. You know, obviously the you know, the Panama Papers were, you know, sort of a watershed moment for, I think, public understanding of how these right. structures operate. Um, you know, but it's interesting. Some of what was created there was really just uh, maybe to put it harshly tax avoidance uh, or, you know, structuring to create the the best tax structure for you in a more polite right. way, I suppose. Um, and then there were, you know, people were trying to obscure the origins of money in a maybe more nefarious way. So if you're a financial institution, obviously you have to be on guard for the nefarious action, but some of it is also just a guy trying to pay less tax and you know, has the wherewithal to create structures to do that. And, you know, do these things, can they look the same? You know, if you're a financial institution, be like, hey, this thing's being routed through seven different shell companies. This could be suspicious or it could be something that is legal, maybe a little questionable 
I suppose ethically, I guess, but you know, not illegal. And is that is that something that can trip a bank up? It could, and it goes back to your due diligence, mm -hmm. right? If you don't understand your customer, mm -hmm. uh, it's best to have a quote-unquote conversation and have the customer explain to you why he's structuring his or her business affairs in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes your determination if you still feel comfortable based on that explanation. Ideally, you get an explanation before the transactions happen. Right. To make sure you as a financial institution or any other business are not caught in the middle of later on, most likely government investigation into tax evasion, money laundering, corruption, etc. Understood. Um, I think we'll go to some questions now. We have a few that have come in um, as we've been speaking. So uh, I'm going to start with a question from Patrick. Um, this is specific to Russia. He says, have the sanctions imposed upon Russia and Russians improved the ability of the West, the U.S. in particular, to uncover the extent of global money laundering activities by Russians, which have been pervasive for years? What concrete steps can or should be taken to materially reduce such activities? I don't think sanctions have helped uncover Russian money laundering. Mm. If you think about the purpose of the sanction, it's to prohibit financial institutions in the case of U.S. sanctions to do business with individuals, entities, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, Russian money laundering or money laundering of any kind of origin is simply to obscure the original source of the funds. Mm -hmm. So I would keep both of it separate. I don't think there hasn't been much uncovering that happened. What happened is there has been more publicity, particularly in the United Kingdom, around who owns what assets. Mm -hmm. And which brings us back full circle to ultimate beneficial ownership of corporate entities, etc. Um, here's a question from Scott. He asks, how do we keep our institutions accountable? The $7.1 billion fine for Deutsche Bank after proving uh, they helped launder money, he says, is laughable. Sorry, $7.1 million. Well, look, I think financial institutions are regulated. Mm -hmm. They are heavily regulated. If there are breakdowns in internal controls, yes, you see the headline fines. What you do not see which generally does not make the headlines in the newspaper or on TV, is the cost of the cleanup those financial institutions face. They need to improve their internal controls. They might have to revisit the due diligence they've done on certain customers, etc. So I always call the fine that appears on the front page of the news more the tip of the iceberg mm -hmm. versus the actual financial impact that those financial institutions face not only in terms of financial impact based on reputational damage, mm -hmm. but for lack of a better word, clean up remediations, uh, further investments in system people processes. Mm -hmm. uh, so we should not only look at the headline number in terms of a negotiated settlement, because the cost of the remediation for those financial institutions is generally much higher by a significant factor of X times. Mm -hmm than what is in the ultimate settlement with the government. Um, we have a question from Harry. This is sort of a specific question. He's asking about the Hawala system. That's the money transfer system employed uh, largely in the Middle East. So is the Hawala system one of the most sophisticated ways to launder money? 
Um, it depends how you want to de define sophisticated. It's right. probably one of the older system because it mm. does not rely on financial institutions of any mm. kind, but relies on a system of trust and quote unquote netting on books mm -hmm. where money brokers between point A and B communicate in one form or other by phone, email, etc. And at the end of the day, week, month, they settle the books. Mm -hmm. Um it's very difficult to detect this kind of activity, but mm -hmm. it is detectable and it's been around for thousands of years. It simply eliminates financial institutions at the middleman. Mm -hmm. And I would say it's not only limited to the Middle East, uh, Havala type systems mm -hmm. have been used in many jurisdictions, either because there were certain government controls that you could not convert your local currency into a global currency like the US dollar, the British pound sterling or mm -hmm. the euro. Uh, so people would use other informal means to maybe prevent their savings being raised by inflation and move their life savings into quote unquote hard currency. Mm -hmm. So not always is the use of an informal value transfer system like a Havala mm -hmm. necessarily supporting illegal activity. No, certainly. It's a quite useful system for a lot of people. Um, Cindy asks, what impact do you see the new FinCEN Corporate Transparency Act will have on the fin on financial institutions, regulators, and criminals? Let's see until we finalize it. Mm -hmm. And let's see until we implement it. Uh, the impact on the financial institutions will be very simple. It will be a lot of work for financial institution mm -hmm. to do additional due diligence and to meet the requirements. There will be more work for some than for others because some financial institutions have been going much beyond regulatory requirements in terms of due diligence. And this goes back decades where some made it a point they do wanna establish ultimate beneficial ownerships while other financial institutions were more exceeding the regulatory bar, but maybe not by as much. So for them, it will be much more work to, quote unquote, catch up to the new regulatory requirement. And that's probably the theme for most financial institutions out there to shift the thinking a little bit away from compliance mm -hmm. and more to active risk management and horizon scanning. Um, and maybe this will be our last question. This is from Kush. Uh, he asks, uh, given the transparency of public blockchains, do you think crypto will be as conducive to money laundering uh, as is generally assumed? Um, that depends where we put the general assumption on right. how conducive crypto is to money laundering mm -hmm. and whether it's even worth for a money launderer to engage in money laundering via crypto because mm -hmm. the on and off cost of getting on the blockchain from cash mm -hmm. are quite significant, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yes, there's records on the public blockchain, but there's also means and ways how to, again, hide your origin and or your destination. That makes sense. Um, well, that's all the time we have for today. Um, I want to thank you, Sven, for joining us, and thanks to our audience for tuning in. Uh, please join us again on Monday. Uh, Barron's will speak with Chris Davis, Chairman and Portfolio Manager of Davis Advisors on the Outlook for Financial Markets, Industry Sectors, and Individual Stocks. Thank you all for listening. Be well and have a great weekend. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. 
Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.